that starts us off right. Um, why don't we do this, though? Uh, why don't we have a word of prayer real quick? Go ahead and stand again and bump elbows with your neighbor, and let's, let's pray before we get into things tonight. Father, Lord, I thank you this evening, and Lord, even as we have sung, let every heart prepare him room. So, Lord, we know there was no room in the inn. Uh, there was no room with the innkeeper. There was no room with King Herod. There was no room with, um, Lord, many who came into contact with Mary and Joseph uh, at that time, that night of your first coming. There was just no room. They all missed it. Uh, Lord, we don't want to miss it. And, and yet we have to admit, when we're preparing room in our heart, our heart is as hard as that manger that we saw the picture of this morning, which not made of wood, but carved out of, out of rock, just like a bone box without the lid, just a, just a feeding trough for the animals. And Lord, our heart, our heart, certainly before we got saved, I think all of us could say our hearts were no less hard than that toward you, toward the things of God. Lord, we don't want it to stay that way. And we know that is a real work of grace, first of all, to, to bring us to you and then to cause us to desire the sincere milk of your word and desire to get moved from milk into meat and desire to grow. And Lord, I think there's no better passage, no better part of the Bible that gets us into doing exactly that than the 119th Psalm. So, Father, I pray you'd be with us tonight as we look into this together. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I'm going to ask if there's any, uh, well, actually, I think, I think I only have two copies left. So we did not finish verses 1 to 8 last time. But if you did not bring back with you the handout from last time. How many people are like that? How many still don't have a handout? You need a, you need a handout? Okay, just, 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 just a couple? Okay, if it's just, huh? That's the new one, but how many need like for verses one to eight that we didn't finish? Because if, if it's just a couple, I have enough here. If it's any more than that, we'll have to, have to run some. Um, had a, had a few when I came in, and I know I noticed a few of you picked those up, and I and and I do have the new new one also. Maybe they didn't know that they may may have made some more copies already on it, um, but I did have it up here. I was gonna get that handed out in due time, um, because hopefully we will finish the first eight verses and then be able to roll right into that next segment. Uh, which, which will actually be the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet um, that we will look at. Now, I did want, since, uh, since this is uh, two weeks since we've been together, and last Sunday night we were able to have missionary David Thompson with us from Chile. And Chile is an eight-hour flight from Miami, to Santiago, that's longer than New York to London. So it's longer than a flight from New York to London. So it's a long flight. Plus, uh, that's not quite all the way to where they are at uh, outside of Santiago. Plus, there's a flight from here to Miami. So I, whatever that is, three or four hours. 
plus there's layovers, plus there's this and that. So really to get to where he's at is about 14 to 17 hour travel time. And uh, so I, we wanted to take advantage of having him while he was still here in country. And he wasn't going to be able to be here. He'll be able to be with us, I think, Wednesday night of Mission Focus, and that's it. And, and so I wanted to be able to get him with us, so to give a full report and have a time to really speak uh, himself of his own ministry and what was going on. So, so we did that. Um, you know, it's just so hard to travel. It is, uh, you possibly we could get there if you have the right vaccinations and boosters and whatever else. Uh, getting back, the problem though right now for us in organizing trips is, is trying to get back t- into our country from those places. And even some of the places that we would want to go to that we've gone to in the past, we have missionaries there. You get there and you've got to quarantine for you know, a week. So, okay, it takes me a full day of travel to get there. I got to quarantine a week. It's going to take me a full day of travel to get back. And typically, we plan international trips for about, you know, 10-day stint. So I've got like one day, two days to minister. And so we're, we are in the yellow um, in terms of looking at missions trips for this next year. And I think we will be in the yellow until they figure out Omicron. And until they get their head around Omicron, how to deal with that, then they may give the green uh, and it'll be easier for international flights and international travel particularly. Uh, So so maybe that will happen. And but I but it's not going to happen until we get our head around other stuff. We just don't know when that is. And so it's it's you know what we what the good thing about that is allows you to start planning and saving for what what we would do, will do in 2023, should the Lord tarry. So you've got that much time to both prepare your heart, prepare your, your finances, prepare everything else to be able to really go out and, and do something in 23 if we cannot do it this year in 2022, and that is assuming the Lord tarries is coming. So Psalm 119, Psalm 119, which, by the way, I just put a post up on um, Zambia and our Zambia kids and what we do with that. So uh, I put the, I typically write my story on, uh, on um, Instagram, and then that gets pushed out to Facebook. So, uh, but Zambia is another place we'd like to go to, and it's just, you know, maybe we can take it. They want us to come do a pastor's conference, and so maybe we can, uh, you know, throw three or four people at that. Um, and get them back, but uh, I think at the moment we're not even sure how we would do that, but, uh, you know, we'll be praying. So Psalm 119, uh, verses 1 to 8, just to bring everybody up to speed since it's been two weeks, and maybe maybe you weren't here last time, so, you know, if you're a type A personality, you want to fill in all your blanks. We started off with kind of talking about the three simultaneous applications of the Word of God, and we usually refer to them as historical, inspirational, and sometimes we use the word doctrinal. I don't know why we do that, because it's all doctrinal, it's all teaching, I think we mean doctrinal by the sense that it is prophetic application, it's future application, mainly to the tribulation and or to the kingdom. Therefore, it contains doctrine you cannot apply apply to the Christian today. And it is because that, that biblical method of how to study the Bible itself and interpret the Bible itself has been lost because of the skeptical viewpoint that scholars have adopted, uh, 
since that biblical viewpoint has been lost, then boy, everybody's just so messed up and everything is so messed up today. But there are three applications. And in terms of Psalm 119, historically, it's David's own testimony to the authority and sufficiency of the Bible as a handbook of life prophetically, future application, the Messiah's testimony to the authority and sufficiency of the Bible as a handbook for life, uh, even, as, even as they go through the tribulation, we'll get into uh, the millennium. Inspirationally, you know, what should be your testimony as to the authority and sufficiency of the Bible as a handbook for life? We, 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 we uh, you know, go back and listen to it because we went through all of those in terms of historically David's life you know, the, here's how this fits in there and, and, and all of those things. And then um, another idea I wanted you to latch on to was kind of this progression of this trinity, this progression of three things from principle to practice to power. In other words, if you take the Bible principle and if you will apply the principle. Now, now we, you know, we often talk about applying the Bible and drawing down its application to us and that just sounds a whole lot to me like buttering your toast. You know, putting butter on your toast. Well, I'm going to apply the Bible. And, and it just sounds like we're too, you know, I, I mean, I don't disagree with it necessarily, but I think it makes us a little, gives us the viewpoint that we're a little, that we are passive in the equation. So rather than say apply, why don't we say practice? Because if you're not practicing it, you're not applying it. I mean, the only way to apply the Bible is to practice it. So you start with the principle. Principalize your life from Bible principles. Define your life. Run everything through the filter of the Word of God to tell you what to do. Seek God's face. Seek God's counsel with the Word of God and with prayer. I know that, you know, we have been mocked before as simply telling people to, to read your Bible and pray. Well, okay, reading your Bible and praying does not do anything for you. It is what you find as you read and the heart connection you make with God as you pray that does something for you. So principalize it, then practice the principles that you found, and it results for you in power. So David uses a number of words for the word of God itself. And as we mentioned, there are only four verses out of the 146 that do not mention the word of God. Uh, verses 390, 122, and 132. But in every other verse, one of 10 synonyms is used for the Bible. One of those is the law. David refers to it as the law. And to the unsaved, the law is an enemy. To the legalist, legalistic believer, it's a dictator. To the carnal Christian, it's a straitjacket. To spiritual believers, it's the handbook of human life. Uh, one of the things, one of the really important principles I hope you wrote down, I don't, I don't know that I had it in the notes, is that you know, the way you treat the word of God is the way you treat the God of the word. And I think people don't pick up on that today. And uh, it is no wonder they have so little faith in God, so little trust in God, because they are so skeptical of the scriptures that they can sit in their lap and read. I mean, we've trained up a whole generation or a couple of generations to be skeptical of the Bible in front of them. 
We had a, you know, we had a young lady uh, a couple of three years ago, and and um, she came from good, uh, you know, evangelical background, kind of free evangelical church. That's Chuck Swindoll uh, movement. Uh, uh, That's part part of what you know, church that he pastored for a long time. And uh, so, um, you know, I was wondering about what we say about the King James and all that, and and. Um, you know, if, uh, if, you know, if she, and, you know, she was, she, she'd gone through discipleship, but like, well, well, if I teach here, can't I teach from some other translation? I thought, huh, okay. So let me pull out my NIV study Bible. Now, I could have pulled out my ESV study Bible, because it would have said the same thing. Substantially, or I could have pulled out my New American Standard Bible Study Bible, or you know my um, I don't know what else, what other study Bible. But but for, you know for for the, that particular moment, that particular purpose. Okay, let me pull out my NIV Study Bible. And we open here. Let's open here and let's look at what is said. Uh, let me just pick John chapter eight. John chapter eight. I mean, it's pre- it's very blatant right there in the notes. Well, this wasn't part of the Word of God. What are you doing reading this? <laughs> I didn't quite say it like that, but almost. This is not, you know, this is not part of the Bible, but we put it here because it, you know, <laughs> we've seen it for so long. Same thing with, so the first half of John chapter 8, the last half, Mark chapter 16, same thing. And various spots, and, and so, and there, are, you know, there are a couple of places in Acts and in First John five seven where they remove the verse and then they renumber the verses so you don't know the verse is gone. Uh, you know, and they and they give their justifications in their study Bibles. It's like, well, the oldest manuscripts don't have it, so it wasn't part of the original. Okay, I'm, that only proves my point. We've spent at least two generations teaching our young people to be skeptical of the Bible they have in their hand. And so I'm like, no, you cannot teach our, what, you want to teach them what? Teach them out of the NIV? You want to teach them that? No. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty easy to be entreated, I, fe- I think. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm obviously, if I'm the lead pastor, then there's some intimidation factor with that that, that I really hate because I'm introverted anyway. And then so for people to be intimidated of me, you know, by me and on, on top of that, um, you know, it's just really difficult. But uh, I, I would say I'm easy to be entreated and, you know, very generous, generous about most things. But, man, somewhere I got to draw a line and, and, I, and I just got to draw a line there. And because the thing that we have missed is the way you treat the word of God is the way you're treating God. And so it's no wonder you don't have any faith in him. It's no wonder that when you come into me for counseling, you try and give me a fiat accompli, a, 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 an accomplished fact that even God cannot change, that, oh, this can't be fixed and nothing, can, nothing will ever change on this. Well, okay, why don't we just box God out? Why did you even come to me? Obviously, you don't want pastoral counseling. You don't want biblical counseling. Uh, uh, okay, so how you treat the Word of God is how you treat God. Then we began to look in these first eight verses, and this is about as far as we got was to verse 1. 
And we talked about how the head of these first eight verses, it, there is the letter A, or Aleph, in the Hebrew, and that Aleph is represented uh, by an ox, and that is a less easy to see in the type of um, um, Hebrew that we have, the printed Hebrew that we have up on the slide, it's much more easy to see when you see an actual Hebrew speaker write it. But it did come uh, out of the, the letter A, K, they're all, it's a pictographic language, like Chinese. And so each letter is a picture of, of something. And in this case, um, their word for ox apparently starts with an A, and so A for ox, and uh, that's the first letter. So look with me, if you would, in verse 1, verse 1, blessed, stop. Now, that word blessed, you will notice, is repeated in verse 2, and no place else in Psalm 119. And that means verses 1 and 2 define Happiness. Okay, did I say we got to principalize our Bible? I mean, you got to read your Bible in such a way you can get the principles out of the words and then, then practice those principles to have God's power. So, so, verses 1 and 2 define happiness, not by the world standard, not by the streets standard, not by the corner drugstore standard, but by the absolute infallible standard of the one who created us. The street defines happiness the same way Colorado does. <laughs> Here, smoke this. And, you know, it's not enough to smoke it. Well, I, no, I don't know. I have, I have not been to or through Colorado since they made this change. But my understanding is from several of you who have been there, that you can, you don't have to smoke it. You can buy candy with it. You can buy chocolate. It's got, you know, it's in, the, it's in chocolate you can buy. It's in, it's, you know, and if you're not careful about how you do it, well, then, okay, you, you get a psychotic break with reality. Okay, that's kind of the world, the way the world defines happiness is either going to be on the, you know, strictly very religious side kind of a Buddhist mindfulness, which is actually mindlessness, and I'm going to push this out, and I'm going to act like nothing is real, well, then I'll be happy, because I'm ignoring everything that's happening. Or, I'm going to drink this, I'm going to smoke this, I'm going to do this, and, and that's how the street defines happiness. Uh, so, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and turn to Proverbs 14. As, as we continue looking here in um, verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, Proverbs 14. Verse 1 says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Now you'll notice if you have a King James Bible with center column references that there's a little letter or number by that word, undefiled, and when you trace it to the center column, it informs you that the James gang said that this could also be translated as perfect or sincere. Huh, okay, look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. 
all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. Well, sincere. Okay, I can read in there the same word, undefiled. Throughly furnished, not thoroughly, but throughly, through and through furnished unto all good works. So this psalm is the perfection for the man of woman of God, which 2 Timothy 3, 17 talks about. I mean, all the word of God is profitable to bring about that for perfection. But I'm going to say the Psalm 119 is the absolute apex of bringing that to you. So blessed are the undefiled. And you know, it's easy to be undefiled if you're sitting on a bookshelf someplace, you know, like, like you go into the cathedrals, the great cathedrals of Europe or other places, and you see all the saints on pedestals. Well, it's easy to be undefiled as if you're just a saint standing on a pedestal. But that, that is kind of like me trying to make free throws when I'm the only one on the court. You know, me trying to make baskets, shoot baskets when I'm the only one on the court. I mean, unless you are Steph Curry, and <laughs> you can just, I mean, they started having to guard Steph Curry as soon as he gets out of his car to come into the game. I mean, that's, that's how bad it is. Uh, you know, when you, can, when you can start making shots from half court, I, I'm just saying, it is hard to guard you. But for, for the normal person, I can play really well until I have someone uh, guarding me and someone who's playing against me. So it's one thing to be, to be undefiled, but verse 1 says, I'm going to tell you how to be undefiled in the way. That means in your lifestyle. Now in the New Testament, the King James word for your lifestyle is your conversation. And you can only make your journey through life one of two ways. There are only two alternate lifestyle choices. I don't know how many genders there are. Because I feel like anytime someone wants to make up and coin and invent a new one, well, then that just adds to the list. So I don't know what it is. LGBTQ plus. They got to put a plus on the end because it's just... It's, it, you, know, it, it, uh, you know, sinners can sin, and they can sin so many ways, you can't even describe how they're sinning. You've got to just put a plus at the end. But in reality, there are only two alternate lifestyle choices. I want, to, I want you to see them here in Proverbs 14, verse 12. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. All right, you have the way of Psalm 119, verse 1, and you have the way of Proverbs 14, verse 12. God's way is defined in the second half of this verse as the law of the Lord, who walk, what is his way? His way is when you are walking in the law of the Lord. That is the way that David the psalmist chooses, 
most people consider that way uh, totally undesirable. So the psalmist says in verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. You know, everybody's seeking something out of life. I remember when we were working with international students, and one year I was uh, at a conference, I, you know, I became, so I was their community section director for the region of NAFSA that we were part of, National uh, Association of Foreign Student Affairs, and so I was the community section uh, person, and then I was the chair of the region, and then that put me on the board uh, the, of the group uh, for the entire organization. And so, you know, I'd have to go to Washington, D.C. a couple of times a year. I can remember we did, we had one conference, we did one national conference, and so there's like, ah, 8,000 uh, mainly foreign student advisors and people like that that work with students, and then, you know, the smaller representative of people like us who were community organizations working with students and I can remember this one workshop that we were in, and guy was up there talking about how, you know, everybody has an angle, and everybody, nobody does something for nothing. You know, I'm, who am I? I just sat back there and kept my mouth shut. But one of the other people, man, they, they piped up, and they said, what about Mother Teresa? Uh, okay, and I, you know, uh, 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 and you would think that might, you know, on the surface, be a good example of someone who's doing something selflessly. Uh, except that within the theology of Catholicism, no, she was kind of getting something out of what she was doing. But and however, so I, you know, I would say everybody maybe is seeking something out of life to get married to get a promotion, to find approval, to try and please a parent or please a spouse, but there can be no greater purpose out of your life than to seek God and his glory with your life. Put everything else aside. You know, approval of anybody else or pleasing anybody else. Why don't we just seek God and his glory? So, so, so verse 2, blessed. Now I will tell you this about that word in the Hebrew. That word in the Hebrew is the Phil Robertson word. You remember Duck Dynasty? Okay, this is, this is like happy, happy, happy. Okay, it is, it is a plural form of happiness. Happy, happy, happy. The devil has his counterfeits. They are too shallow to swim in and too dirty to drink from. So the devil's brand of happiness depends on happenings. And if the happenings are not just right, well, then you do other things to get happiness. Americans, we are... We are whiskey people. I mean, whiskey is the American drink. I mean, every Western from decades of cinematography, whiskey is the thing. I'm not really sure what bourbon is, but my impression is it's some type of really expensive whiskey. I'm not sure about that. 
some of the other things are just, you know, it is just variations on lighter fluid. And, and I don't understand them, but apparently they make you happy. And so if you're not going to choose this path, you, well, you, okay, you can choose another one. And it has, you know, it has, the thing about the other path is it's broad with a whole lot of lanes. And you can choose any lane depending on what your bent is or your brand is. But God's path and way of happiness is kind of narrow. It's kind of limited to seeking him and, um, and, and his glory. So happiness is not pleasure. Happiness is not prosperity. Happiness is not power. Happiness is not popularity. Happiness is not position. Let me hit you with this definition. Undefiledness is not sinlessness, but total, complete, perfect devotion to the Lord in sincerity and integrity. I mean, for all of that, you could just write the word worship. That is where we're at when we worship. So you can't be happy without holiness, but you can't be holy without the Holy Ghost. So you can be undefiled. You can be undefiled. You know, and this is a great thing about God's grace. This is probably the most serious thing I'll say all night. You can be happy, or excuse me, you can be undefiled even if you lose your virginity, even if you get an abortion, even if you got somebody pregnant, because this psalm is going to tell you how to reset righteousness through the word of God. And that is why verse 3 is now able to state, they also do no iniquity. Why? You remember your English grammar? Okay, just the punctuation. There's a colon there. They also do no iniquity. Why? How is that? They walk in his ways. Now, be turning to Psalm t- uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Keep your finger here. Be turning to Hebrews 10. The psalmist sees two things happen whenever we bring our will into captivity to God's word. There is not a bondage of the will, as Martin Luther talked about. It's not quite like that. It's not Calvinistic and Reformed theology like that. Your will is not in bondage. You have an unfettered free will. But when you will bring it bound before the word of God, then as you take every thought into captivity to Christ, you gain a purpose for living and you get a progressive purity in life. So the ultimate secret of a beautiful mind and therefore a beautiful life, is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, somebody stand up and read that in your outside um, uh, playground voice. Uh, Verse 7, I'm sorry, did I not say the verse? Chapter 10, verse 7, Hebrews. Huh. 
here, 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 and this is, you know, this is a quotation uh, quoting Christ speaking. These are the words of the Lord Jesus about himself. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, in the, in the Old Testament, in the word of God, it is written of me to do your will. So God, that's what I've come to do. And you know what the thing is, since he was the son of God, but we are sons of God, then the Bible will equip us to do the same thing, and it will make us blessed. It will make us happy, 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 men and women, verses 1 to 3. It will also make us holy men and women, and now we turn the corner until until the next three verses, 4 to 6. So verses 1 to 4 are kind of a general statement. Verses 5 to 8 are more of a personal cry. Just to give you an overview, verses 1 to 4 are a double blessedness, but verses 5 to 8 are the effect of obedience. So verses 1 to 4 teach us the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings as you cultivate your appetite for the Word of God. See, we are so thrown off uh, because uh, we are Americans. And by that I mean we are the new Romans. And by that I mean we have a very Latin mindset. There are reasons why Rome conquered the world. I mean, it was hard to get around the world in that day, and they had problems with the same people we do in the same spot, Afghanistan. So they never really crossed that Rubicon over into Persia and beyond, and neither have we. But for what we call the West, and actually even a lot of the Middle East and eastern part of Europe, um, we're pretty much the new Romans. We, we kind of got, we've got, you know, and there are reasons why the Romans were the leaders and they conquered and they did things and they controlled the levers of power for the entire world, and there are the same reasons why we do today. Those reasons are because we are, we're planners, we are linear thinkers, we're analytical, uh, we are the inventors, we are the ones who steal the inventions and know how to make money out of it, uh, we are the ones who get other people to do the work so we can do the planning and we, you know, we can reap the profits, and, and uh, okay, we're just... We're like that. I mean, I mean we, we are just like that. And uh, because of that, we think when it comes to a lot of our mental, psychological, and spiritual diseases, we look for a cure. We look for something that will make it one and done. We... Um, we don't want to take vitamins and build up our immune system. What we want is a medicine. We want a new drug, like Huey Lewis and the news. We want a new drug that, that because it's a drug, it'll take care of it like that, and it'll pull me out of things like that, and it'll heal me like that. And, and that so throws us, I think, today, and that is why... Things like what we do with your children on Sunday mornings in Harvest Kids, on Sunday nights in Awana, this is why it is so important. 
because we are plant every week, every week we are planting seeds. Every week we are watering seeds that have been planted. Every week we are cultivating their hearts and cultivating ground in their hearts every week. Now, they still have a free will. And I don't know if the temptations in this life are that big a deal compared to simply the spirit of the age and the mentality of this life. And they will have the option to choose to go with that or to go with what we've taught them. But at least we will have taught them and they will at least have that behind them. And what we oftentimes miss even as adults is that Christian life, Christian living is not one and done. You know what? Discipleship's not one and done. That is, that is why if all you did was get discipled, you know what? You're probably dying on the vine three years from now because you've got to turn around and be discipling somebody else because it's not one and done. I mean, I admit they're just 16 basic fundamental concepts. But there are things that if you do not continually run them through your life like a living stream, if you do not continually run them through, well, you won't be pure because you'll be a reservoir, not a conduit. And you won't, you know, you won't have strength and you won't, you know, because Christian life is like that. You can, you can never stop. You've got to keep moving. And as a matter of fact, you've got to go back to the things you already learned. And, you know, that's why some people take discipleship too more than once. You know, and frankly, that's a good thing. You need to be in the Word of God every day. You need to mate with people over an open Bible every week of your life that you can. So, so hopefully discipling somebody, and if not formally, then informally somehow, some, something, Bible study, whatever. You've got to continually be going back to those same basic fundamental concepts that we deliver in our discipleship. One, because those are frankly the answer. 90% of the time, that is the answer to the problems you're experiencing in life. And so this Christian life is, is, is not a one and done. It is a series of new beginnings. Because if you feed on the word, you give the spirit something to work with. Feed on the word continuously. That way you give the Holy Spirit something to work with. I don't know how many Sundays somebody will come up to me and, you know, if it's not because of what is preached on Sunday, it'll be because of something that was, you know, I put out and put together in our prayer diary. And, and they'll be like, man, I, you know, I don't know how you knew this. But, but that, that was right where I was at. That was just what I needed. That was da-da-da-da-da. Okay, you know, that will always happen as long as you are continuously going through the Word of God. So, so getting, getting the Word of God in you and, and going through the Bible itself. And uh, so, pay, you know, I'd say pay attention to our prayer diary. It has a daily reading plan in it. It's one I've put together because it's chronological. It's chronological. It takes you through the Bible chronologically. Uh, you know, and it's just what, what would it take you 15 minutes a day? It's like three or four chapters. And there are other things we could do. And maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll hit upon something and say, hey, why don't we all do this? Most, most uh, Bibles are about, what, 1,200 pages? 
So every day, maybe not Sunday, you know, take a day off. But every day, just read to a page with a zero. Page 10, page 20, page 30. You know what? You'd go through the Bible three times in a year. I think if you're doing it at that pace, you'll have pretty much exactly what you need, whatever you're facing at the time. Because that's the way spiritual life is. Otherwise, it's not life. It's not spiritual life. So, verse 4. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Now, this word precepts only appears in the, in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms. And it has the idea of taking charge by keeping Bible principles. So Bible principles allow us to take charge of life. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts, to do it diligently, because that's what puts us in charge. Verse 5, oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. We all know how easy it is to wander away. And this is the same cry here in verse 5 that comes out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. We are incapacitated by our flesh. But we are emancipated by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, because the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to dwell richly in us. And when the word is dwelled in richly, then it imparts holiness. It's not something we manufacture on our own, not something through our willpower, not something we have to try and do. The word of God does the work and it imparts the holiness we need. Now turn to James chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keeping your finger here. James 1, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3. James chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because if you will do that, if you'll be emancipated by the law, meaning the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that's that's the way I like to define David's use of that word law here in Psalm 119 then the Holy Spirit uses the word richly dwelt in to impart holiness, and the result is going to be verse 6. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. So a decision is necessary now because this word respect means to look upon or look into, like you look into a mirror. James chapter 1, somebody stand up and read verses 23 to 25 in your loudest outside playground voice. James 1, 23, 24, chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And that's everything we've been saying to this point right up here. 
I mean, that is, that is a summary of exactly what David has been telling us so far in the first eight verses, first six verses of Psalm 119. This, this is the way to do it. I shall not be ashamed when I have respect. When I look into your law, I gaze into it like looking into a mirror. You know, humanly speaking, we walk away and forget what we look like. Spiritually speaking, we need to keep looking. We need to keep gazing into that. And, and the neat thing is, the longer you gaze into the Word of God, Paul says, it no longer reflects you, you start reflecting it. And it's just like Moses coming down from the mount, his face reflected the God whose glory he had just seen. Now, that freaked everybody else out, but that's how we're supposed to be. So then, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, from our glory to his glory, from little glory to, to lots of glory. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are changed by the Spirit from glory to glory into the image of the Lord as we look with open face, unveiled face, into the Word of God. Moses, after he came down from the mount, put a veil on so he wouldn't freak out all his friends. But when he was up there with God, he didn't have... He didn't have anything on his face. It absorbed everything. So the mirror doesn't reflect us. We reflect the mirror. And that is so powerful. And every single one of those elements is of utmost importance. And that is why Psalm 119 is the center and the key to your Bible and to your Christian life. Okay, watch. Watch. Uh... So, number one, okay, okay, watch. Let me just put it together for you. Number one, in the mirror of the word. Okay, so open the word. You got to open your Bible directly. You got to do that for you. Nobody can do that for you. Number one, in the mirror of the word. Number two, with open face. And everything that means with openness to God, with openness to the Holy Spirit, with transparency about your life, with not hiding anything. So number two, with open face. Number three, beholding. So that means you knowing how to study your Bible. Well, that's why we have discipleship two. I mean, discipleship one is great, but discipleship two teaches you how to study the Word of God for yourself. So number three, beholding, i.e., knowing how to study your Bible. Number four, changed as the Spirit of God does a supernatural work. Just like a seed germinating or a baby being conceived. So number four, change. Number five, you go from one glory to another glory. And the other glory you go to is better than the last glory you were at. And I don't even know how to, how to process that. How do you chart that? I mean, if I were a nurse, I'd be saying, man, I don't even know how to chart that. Because you got glory, 
Then you go to another glory. Wow, really? Can, can, can one glory be better than another? Well, apparently, I don't, even, I, I, you know, I don't even understand. Number six, spiritual glory results in a visible image being manifested to others. Spiritual glory results in a visible image being manifested to others through your life. And then number seven, change comes without psychotherapy. Hello, somebody. Change comes without psychotropic drugs. Change comes with, with even, even without your ex doing what they ought to do or without your spouse straightening up doing this or without your children, you know, doing that and flying right and without, no, change comes not because they've changed, but because the word of God changes you and now that is influencing, affecting everything else in the way God wants it to from glory to glory. So the Bible will make us blessed. It'll make us blessed, happy men and women, verses 1 to 3. It will make us holy, men and women, verses 4 to 6. And yet, the result will not be arrogance, but it will be making us humble, men and women, verses 7 and 8. Because we're doing two things, and this is what makes us continue to be humble. We are still learning, and we are still longing. So, verse 7, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart. And the prerequisite to proper praise is learning the word. And you know, this is so important. That concept is so important. I mean, I know on Sundays we get Sunday, so everything is like a pyramid. So even the church is like a pyramid. So I'm scared of pyramids. You know, there are people that would say, look, you shouldn't have a Christmas tree because, you know, a Christmas tree is this fake uh, counterfeit of the tree of life, and it's this pyramid that you put in your room and you worship like the pagans, and it's got these, it's got these bowls on it that, you know, doesn't even have real fruit, it's dead, and, and, uh, and oh, okay, okay, I'm not afraid of pyramids. Because uh, the ch- that's all the church is. Sunday mornings, we got a wide base. You have to have a wide base. Somebody asked me one time, well, you know, are you just a Sunday morning only church? Well, I would say the churches that are sun- uh, Sunday morning only churches are the ones who don't have a service Sunday night. I'm just saying. I think the Sunday morning only churches are the ones who don't have a midweek service like we have. But and however, uh, yeah, to most of yeah, it's a wide base. So on Sunday mornings, there are saved people and lost. I, I mean, I hope so. I hope there will be more and more lost people. They can come in and hear the gospel. And so there's all different levels of maturity. There are all different levels of understanding. There are all different levels of of that going on. And so we get people on those all different levels. And um, so uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, uh, most people are singing. Some people are not. Well, that kind of tells me what level they're at. But even some of those people who are singing, you know, are just mouthing the words, maybe even in tune. But the fact 
that learning the word of God is a prerequisite to proper praise is so important, it is repeated in verses 164, 171, and 175. He doesn't say in verse 7, just, I will praise thee, stop. No, he says, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart. So verses 164, 171, 175 all confirm that idea that learning God's word, gaining that uprightness of heart, is a prerequisite to proper praise. Then, And if we're not like that in the word, then that is why we either do not praise or we find it so hard to do that, so hard to praise on Sundays. So verse 7, when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments... Now, if you have a King James Bible, center column references, you'll know. Notice a little letter or number by that word, uh, uh, righteous, that phrase, righteous judgments. When you trace it to the middle, it says that the Hebrew actually reads judgments of thy righteousness. Huh. That means God's righteousness judges us. God's wrath does not judge us. I think God's wrath executes God's judgment. But the thing that judges us is God's righteousness. Judgments of thy righteousness. It judges us in order to instruct us and to disciple us in Christ's likeness. When I shall have learned thy righteous judgments, judgments is a word that means a ruling, like a judge would rule in a case, which creates a precedent for other decisions. And our whole court system is based on that. I mean, American jurisprudence is basically based on Roman law that was eventually codified. Everybody goes back to try and see, is there a precedent to argue from? So when lawyers stand before a judge and they make their arguments, they know they have the best case and the most likelihood of winning if they can cite case law from some other court, perhaps in some other jurisdiction at some other time, that already made a ruling and they can say, you know, so-and-so ruled like this. So the precedent has been set. So that word judgment means... A precedent for other decisions. You know, if you have the right judgments early on, if you have the right judgment at the beginning, well, then a precedent is set that makes decisions, and even very hard decisions later on, more likely that they will be right. You know, none of us have all the facts in every circumstance, but we can always sort it out by applying the sword of the Spirit. Solomon's sword. You remember Solomon? Well, how do I tell if which one of these two women is the mother? Okay, bring me a sword. And what I'll say is, let's just cut the child in half. You can both have half. Because I know the real mother is the one that's going to say, no, let the other one have it. And, and that's the sword is the word of God. It always brings out the truth. It, it always brings out what the truth is. 
So if we'll take the sword of the word of God and allow it to define things for us, that is God's judgments. Everything will be dealt with one day. But right now we are still learning. And, verse 8, I will. Now stop. Um, one assignment I would give you, since we're going to have, uh, I don't know how many weeks off maybe we have on Sunday nights, because next Sunday night's the day after Christmas. Uh, I don't think we have service next Sunday night, do we? We don't have next Sunday night, because also we got <laughs> the mission focus coming up starting that win- next Wednesday. And so then that next Sunday night after that is mission focus, uh, conclusion of mission focus. And uh, so it'll be three weeks uh, till we get back together. So let me give you an assignment if you're so inclined. I have time over the holidays. Trace the I wills in Psalm 119. Just go through Psalm 119 and circle all the I wills. Get a notebook and write down all the I wills. I mean, it may be uh, uh, quick. You you maybe will do it quickly if you use something online. You know, I just go to BibleGateway.com. If I were to put those two words "I will" in quotes, then it would not just give me every verse that has the word "I" and every verse that has the word "will." But it actually give me every verse that has "I will." Um, And then I could also filter it and refine it down to just the book of Psalms. And then I could trace it down just to Psalm 119. And then I could extract all the I wills in Psalm 119 that way. Or I could just read through Psalm 119 and do it. Or I could get, you know, there there are three different concordances that you can use. Strong's exhaustive concordance is just that. It's got like every word. It's like an index to the Bible. So every word in the Bible is listed alphabetically. And um, it is keyed to a number that in the back you can get the Greek and Hebrew, basic Greek and Hebrew dictionary meaning of that word. So that's Strong's. Young's is an analytical concordance, mean, meaning that it, uh, it uh, takes the English word, but then sorts it out by the different Greek or Hebrew words it came from. So that's analytical. Cruden's, Cruden's is good if you need a phrase concordance. Now, there are a couple of three other ones out there that sometimes I use. They're very valuable, but uh, not t- typically not in print today. But Cruden's would be the other one that is. And uh, I didn't look this up in Cruden's, but it could be that if you go to look up the word I in Cruden's, it'll break it down to a phrase like I will. I may have it in there. That, that'd be quicker. Or you could just read through Psalm 119 for all the I wills. So, so... So, I will keep thy statutes, O forsake me not utterly. Historically, Lord, don't take away your lamp. Lord, don't stop revealing your word to us through the prophets and and through through the ephod and through all the ways that you're giving us the word of God. Don't stop. That's historically. Inspirationally, Don't let anybody else take away your lamp. In other words, don't let anybody water down your Bible or move you from biblical authority. 
since Satan could not keep us from getting it, which eventually we did in 1611, and then God stopped. The whole process stopped. No more translations, no more revisions for 280 years. So either it's God's word in English or we ain't never had it and we never will because a lot less certainty today than there was back then. But since he could not stop us from getting it, he will always try to corrupt it or downgrade our view of it as an absolute final authority. The psalmist ends this first stanza with his heart still longing for the ability to keep God's word. Our key thought, God is ordered even when our lives are not. He's ordered even when our lives are a mess, and his word will display and will communicate his power to us. And I think we're only two minutes over, so go ahead and stand. Let's have a word of prayer. And I guess that's a good stopping point. Next time we'll be able to start in the next section with uh, verse 9. Father, we thank you again tonight. What a great way to prepare us for the next few weeks that we'll have off from being able to meet together and do things and have the kids here and and them learning the Word of God. And uh, what a great preparation of our hearts, a strengthening. Lord, this is the tonic we need for the toxic times in which we live. This is the strength that we need for this season uh, that we are going into, the Christmas season, the holidays, the new year. People seem to get all spiritual at Christmas and they want to throw it all away on New Year's. So God help us be the light, be the lamp. Lord, may they see in us the glory you've given us by the time we've spent in your word together, even tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.